Shopify grows your business no matter how far or big you grow. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether you're selling your fans' next favorite shirt or an exclusive piece of podcast merch, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Hi, everyone. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Welcome to Yoga Birth Babies, a podcast produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. We will be diving into everything prenatal yoga, birth, and baby-related, hoping to inspire, educate, and empower you through your journey into motherhood. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Deb Flashenberg. I'm your host for Yoga Birth Babies, and today's conversation is very anatomy-based. We're talking about the psoas. It's a muscle deep within your body, and it's a muscle that supports your uterus. It's a muscle that for many people is very tight. It affects the pregnant posture and the postpartum body, and I thought, let's go deeper into this. So to have this conversation, I have Libby Hinesley. She is a licensed physical therapist and certified yoga therapist. She has been teaching yoga for 15 years. She trains yoga teachers. She's been doing that for the last 10 years, and she's been practicing physical therapy for the past eight years. She specializes in treatment of injured yogis, hypermobility spectrum disorder, lower back, sacrum, hip issues, and chronic pain, a lot of things that pregnant people have. So I actually heard Libby on another podcast, and I was listening to her conversation about the psoas, which is a muscle I've been fascinated with for years, and I reached out, and she very quickly said yes, and so I've got her. Now, I'm super excited about this conversation. It does dive deep into talking about anatomy. And physiology, and how and aches and pains of the pregnant body and fetal position, and how the psoas affects that. If you're not used to talking about this, I think this will be right up the alley of many yoga teachers and curious practitioners. But if you're not used to this conversation, take a listen, see what you think. You might relate to be like, oh, I have that ache, I have that pain, and then start to find ways to help remedy that. Okay, but before we get to that conversation, I just want to take a a moment to give a shout out to the September and October teacher trainees I've been working with. We just started our training, our first weekend online together, and they rocked out. Caprice and I were beyond excited about how amazing this group came together and worked. So yay for them. I hope they listen to this and are really proud of themselves. We're actually already full for the November and December, and we opened up January, February. So Yoga Alliance gave the approval for online teacher trainings continue through 2021. 
And that's what we're going to do. We're going to keep training people because the more people we can train in prenatal yoga, the more it goes to the community and the more we believe that people can really listen to their body and learn about their their body and find autonomy and agency over their body. And it's very exciting. So if you're interested in our teacher training, take a look at our website for that. All right. Last thing I just want to remind you is that we've got live streaming classes seven days a week. We've got re-releases seven days a week. So there's so many ways for you to show up and take prenatal, postnatal baby and me classes and all of our parenting classes, childbirth ed. So if you heard about this from the podcast and you come into my class, just let me know and I'm going to give you a special hello. All right. I think that's it. Okay. We're going to take another quick break. And when you come back, enjoy my conversation with Libby. Hi, Libby. How are you? Doing well. How are you doing? I am doing just fine. And I always love giving kind of the the behind the scenes. So listeners, Libby and I are both moms. We are hiding from our kids. (laughs) (laughs) She's up in her attic. I'm hiding in my room. Just like to give you guys a full picture of what's going on as working parents. (laughs) All right. So, all right, Libby, I heard about you when I was listening to Mado's podcast, the um, recent one. And then I guess you've done several and I went down a rabbit hole and I just listened to (laughs) everything. And when I heard you talking about the SOAS, I was thinking, okay, I got to talk to this lady and I got to get her on. So thank you for giving me some time. Great. Thanks for having me. This will be fun. Yeah. All right. So let's start with them. I'd love to learn a little bit about you. Okay. Well, um, I'm a mom, as you mentioned, I have a six-year-old and a three-year-old. And, um, but long before that, I am a yoga teacher and that's kind of how I started getting into things related to the body is I started teaching yoga about 15 years ago. And through that work, I got really interested in therapeutic stuff around the human experience in the body. And so that led me into physical therapy. So I am a physical therapist as well. And I have a private practice that's very modified right now, but, um, where I treat largely um, yogis or people who are, you know, very active and, and um, interested in yoga and injured. So, so yoga led me into physical therapy. And within that realm, I have, you know, specialized to some degree or another in, like I mentioned, yoga injuries, but also um, perinatal concerns, prenatal postpartum types of concerns, chronic pain, um, you know, low back, sacrum kind of pain that tends to be what I am dealing with most of the time and hypermobility, which may relate to pregnancy as we get into our discussion, mm-hmm. um, hypermobility disorders. And then as a yoga teacher, I like to train yoga teachers. So I offer a bunch of trainings to yoga instructors, like in anatomy, especially, and in um, working with special populations like older adults, people with chronic pain, um, it's such a great like combination that. being a yoga teacher and then having that additional information about as a physical therapist, your students and the people you work with are really lucky that you come and offer that to the community. Thank you. It's been a really good fit for me and I'm learning new stuff all the time and I find it all so fascinating. So I think it'll keep my attention for decades to come. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. All right. So what I heard you talking about was the psoas. Now this might sound ridiculous, but I have certain muscles of the body that I really, even though I know they don't live in a vacuum, you're like they're, it's all intertwined, right. but I really loved, I have a couple. I love the psoas, the piriformis and the quadratus lumborum. I don't know why those are kind of my muscles that I'm very attracted to exploring. So when I heard that you were doing something on the 
as I just wanted to pick your brain. So let's dive into that. So as mentioned, it's one of my favorites. So if you can tell the community what it is, where it is, where does it attach to? Yeah. Yeah. It's one of my favorite too. And and actually all three, that's like a grand trifecta that you just mentioned, those three <laughs> muscles. And and it turns out they're all kind of close friends yes. and usually kind of cause trouble together in one way or the other. Yes. So that's kind of interesting. But so the psoas major is a muscle. We have one on each side of the of the spine and pelvis, and it's really right in the front of the spine. And it attaches to the lowest thoracic vertebra. And then every single one of the lumbar vertebrae all the way down. And then it passes through the pelvis along the ilium. And it comes to make contact at the um, lesser trochanter of the femur bone, which is way, way in the inner groin. So it spans a really large area. And that is one of the things, uh, one of the reasons why it has such a big influence on the body. Because as you mentioned, you know, one muscle by itself doesn't, make or break the whole thing. But that's kind of not the case when we when it comes to the psoas major, because it is so influential on the forest of the body. If we think of each muscle as kind of a tree, it's a really influential tree in the in the rest of the forest because it crosses so many joints. And we know that any time a muscle crosses a joint, it has impact on that joint's mobility and stability. So we again have one on each side and that's kind of its span it it attaches to the lumbar vertebrae and thoracic the E12 vertebrae, but also it has all these like slips of attachments into the actual discs, the intervertebral discs as well. So it's really has a potential to pull in a big way on the structures of the spine. What I find so interesting and I'm excited that we'll go into is when we think about the structure of the spine, we think about the pregnant spine, there's such changes during pregnancy Mm -hmm. and, you know, that's going to affect the psoas and its stability and its tightness. But one thing I'm going to kind of throw at you, can you just mention about or talk about the relationship of the iliacus and the psoas because they're pals in a sense, I guess. Yeah, they're pals, like they're neighbors, roommates, you could say. I mean, they share a an inferior attachment at the lesser trochanter of the femur bone right there in the deep groin. They both insert there. And so, but the iliacus originates at the front of the ilium. So it doesn't cross into the spine. So it really doesn't have a lot of influence on the joints of the spine spine, Mm -hmm. except insofar as it has influence on the position of the pelvis, which then can influence the spine. So, you know, a lot of people talk about the iliacus and the psoas as a group, um, and they call it iliopsoas. And while they share some functions, I think it's useful to separate the two muscles because they really, they lead to different things in a way, and they can have some different influences on the lumbopelvic area that are sometimes a little counterintuitive if you're thinking of them as a group only. you know. But when we separate psoas major out, we see that, wow, psoas can do some other stuff that we weren't expecting. So let's talk about that. What are the things that the psoas can do? Because a lot of people will just say, oh, the hip flexor, but it's really, it's more of a stabilizer if I'm understanding it. And please correct me because I am not a physical therapist. Yeah, but you're right. It is a hip flexor, but we've got six muscles that do hip flexion. And in the body, um, there's always lots of redundancy. So there are always um, teams, you know, that pr- you know produce certain movements in the body together. And so... 
Yes, you're right. A lot of people just talk about the hip flexors as the psoas or as iliopsoas, but there are a bunch of other muscles that actually perform a lot of hip flexion, one of which is um, rectus femoris, one of our quadriceps that crosses the hip joint. It's a really powerful hip flexor. So in terms of hip flexion, psoas has lots of help. And it's really, in my mind, not its most interesting function, although it is one of them. Certainly, it can flex the hip, pulls the thigh towards the chest. But because it crosses all these joints of the spine, it also serves as a a major spinal stabilizer, controlling the mobility and stability of this lumbar spine and how it connects into the pelvis and to the leg. So it really is like what connects our whole lower limb to the trunk in a way. And... um, it contains within it the lumbar plexus. So in between just the layers of psoas major lives this whole nerve plexus that's pretty important for innervating the lower body. And so when we get dysfunction in the psoas major, we can have all kinds of impact on not only structural kind of positioning and all that that leads to, but also nerve function. But yeah, in the pregnant body, then the psoas muscle is going to be under more strain, more stress to control a very changing body, an expanding pelvis, you know, a lumbar spine that has all this anterior pull on it, pulling us into the sway back position and displacing the rib cage and all kinds of things are going on. And add to that the pregnant body um, and the hypermobility that comes along with pregnancy. And then we, um, we have trouble with stability. So when you're working with your pregnant clients as a physical therapist, what kind of work do you do on the psoas? Do you, is it more about strengths? Because I'm guessing everything's a little softer. We already have that hypermobility. Mm-hmm. How do you how do you help your or support your your pregnant clients? Yeah, so the the hypermobility really shows up in ligaments. That's the thing that gets soft in pregnancy and ligaments hold the bones together. So when there's more ligamentous laxity that's really hormonally derived, then the muscular system all of a sudden is called on to step up to the plate and provide a little bit more stability because our ligaments aren't really there in the same way that they have been before. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I usually emphasize a lot of strengthening during pregnancy, not specifically of the psoas necessarily, but of all the muscles that really support the sacrum the lower back, the hips, um, because not only we're carrying more weight, but we also just want that muscular strength to help hold us together and give us that stability. So I usually focus on muscles of the lower back and the uh, gluteal muscles as really the primo place to focus because so often uh, pregnant women will get not just the low back achiness, but really can be quite debilitating the sacroiliac joint pain, especially when things get asymmetrical. I see that in pretty much every class. So I'd mm-hmm. say maybe good 25 to 30%. We call it, we have two names for it. It's either the SI family or team SI. And what's uh-huh. great is because we, we pull out pelvises. So we show everyone where it is. And it's great because then the students know and they know they're like, okay, I'm in the SI family. I know my modifications and it becomes empowering for them to like, this is what's going on. And I know how to correct it because a lot of yoga poses can actually worsen SI pain. You know, a lot of those, uh, ace, you know, the asymmetrical ones. So it's yeah. great that people recognize it and they can actually take charge of their own body and feel good about it. But it, yeah, it's such a, such a common, common issue. Yes, it's so common. And the things that intuitively we may be led to do when we feel that discomfort at the sacroiliac joint, 
um, unfortunately tend to be things that in the long make run it make worse. it worse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, how people are like, I kept trying to stretch it and stretch it and it feels worse. I'm like, exactly. right. Let, let's exactly. stabilize. Let and people are like, I did pitch in a whole bunch and it felt great during. And then I came out and I could barely walk. And I'm like, Right. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Yes. It happens all the time. And it's such an interesting thing, especially yogis. You know, um, we just think if there's some discomfort, we're supposed to stretch it more. And that's the answer, you know. And so, yeah, I see that all the time, too. And finally, when people are able to just stop doing those things and then offer some support and stability. Wow. Things really change. And the key is symmetry. And you mm-hmm. mentioned that, that a lot of the asymmetrical yoga postures really can exacerbate the um, sacroiliac pain. And so symmetry is a great place to focus. I also love that you were talking about working the hips and the glutes. And I think for the pregnant body, that's a place that sometimes people think all I want to do is hip openers. Well, it's not always about openers. In fact, I think sometimes we just think external rotation where the internal rotation can be interesting, but strengthening, you know, what we do, we kind of what I teach is more like a yoga-ish. It's kind of more mm-hmm. of an homage. Like we do clamshells and reverse clamshells and trying to get that hip stability. And I think the butt is often forgotten about. And, you know, we don't want that mushy-tushy. We want to have a little bit of support at the in the glutes. Totally. And honestly, you know, if there's one thing that I would recommend for like modern humans, pregnant modern humans, anybody, is to just grow a backside. We have got a problem of not having adequate butt support. I mean, really, and and I see it all the time. Anytime there's a pelvic or low back issue, you can kind of not go wrong by strengthening the hip muscles in the back mm-hmm. of the hip. There may be more to it, of course, but that's always a great place to start because it gives the whole system some support. And when it comes to the psoas major, the gluteus maximus and psoas major have this really cool relationship which is reciprocal because they're on opposite sides of the hip joint. So what's really fun is to exploit neuromuscular properties to your benefit. So for example, there's this property called reciprocal inhibition. And it's really not all that complicated. It just says when a muscle on one side of a joint is always chronically contracted and tense, it will inhibit the muscle opposite it. Okay, so in our case, when we're talking about Tension in the psoas major, which is pretty much epidemic in the modern human body for reasons we can talk about. Yes. You know, it's holding on to this chronic contraction and tension state. It is always inhibiting gluteus maximus. So like your butt's offline, it's sleeping, it's snoring, you know? So we don't get that back body support that we really need, but we can turn the tables on that. And it's a huge approach I use for dealing with dysfunctional psoas all the time is fire up uh, the glutes teach the brain to recruit gluteus maximus. And in turn, you're sending a message to psoas major to chill because now we're, we're helping to inhibit in the other direction. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. And let's, I'm going to have you also talk about, if you don't mind, I've, I take a lot of online, clearly online because there's not a lot going on in my area, <laughs> but online classes. And I hear a lot of people say, squeeze the butt. So can you talk a little bit about the difference between just squeezing and actually strengthening because just squeezing your butt is not the same as adding like tone. Right. Well, it kind of depends on kind of what you mean by all those terms. And also it depends on how sleepy is your butt, you know, because there's this thing called gluteal amnesia and it's it's an actual thing. I didn't even make that up, but so I love that name. (laughs) I, I know. 
It's really, it's so accurate. So it depends on how hard you need to work to send the message to those muscle fibers to actually fire. And, you know, in my own experience and in a lot of people I work with, their experience, they're like, I can't feel it. Nothing's happening, you know? So then you're saying like a squeeze gives a little awareness. Totally. Yeah. And sometimes, honestly, I'll have people smack their butt to help facilitate those muscles. I mean, it seems all silly, but actually it's called facilitation and that tactile input can help uh, recruitment of the muscles. So kind of depends on where we're starting from. But what's interesting about this is if uh, we really squeeze and clench the butt muscles, say in standing, Mm -hmm. then what that's going to produce is a posterior pelvis we're just going to tuck our tailbone under. And um, that may be appropriate for certain exercises or different things like that. But as far as kind of optimal positioning of the pelvis and the relationship between the pelvis and the rib cage and the pelvic floor and the diaphragm um, and the positioning of the femoral heads in their socket, that posterior position of the pelvis is not really what I would ever suggest So I like to try to get people to activate their glutes in a more neutral pelvic position where you're kind of like letting them fluff out behind you, you know, and so that they're in an optimal force length position so that they can produce force. uh, Anyway, so I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I guess I'm often here like squeeze and push your hips forward. I'm like, oh. Oof, yeah, that makes me a little anxious. yeah, because <laughs> because it does have the ability to really alter pelvic position, and that matters for pelvic floor health. It matters for baby positioning and all those things that we want to try to optimize in pregnancy. Yeah, all right. I'm going to pull this back because we got a little into the pelvis, which I love, which we're going to go okay. back to. But okay. I want to talk a little bit about the relationship of the psoas and nervous system because you mentioned that the psoas tends to be chronically tight. And then let's mm-hmm. also throw in because the psoas and the diaphragm meet at T12. I'm guessing there's a relationship there to explore as well. Yeah, definitely. So the psoas and the, and the diaphragm are like, they're completely connected by fascia. You know, there's... So there's muscle and then there's fascia and muscles are the trees I mentioned in this, in the forest analogy, they have a start and they have an ending. They have places where they attach and then that's it. But fascia is what connects all the muscles to all the other muscles and everything else in the body. Fascia really is the forest. And so fascially speaking, the, um, the, the muscle of the psoas and the diaphragm are like so integrated with each other. I mean, they're basically one thing. So when one thing contracts, the other is going to be impacted really closely. So yes, I would say um, that's a, a really important relationship to explore, especially as it relates to heightened nervous system activation, kind of a sympathetic nervous system activation that puts us into a fight or flight kind of response. Um, that will in turn produce tension in the whole system. It'll produce tension everywhere, but especially psoas is very sensitive to that kind of influence and it'll just kind of tense up. It's almost like this very protective mechanism, you know, that's about to curl us into a little ball. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and then of course our breathing changes when we are in that heightened sympathetic state. So that's going to change how our, diaphragm is working and they're just linked together and both really, really connected to that stress response for sure. And I love that you mentioned about 
putting the body in that fight or flight because when we relate this back to our pregnant students, when we're in labor, we don't want that fight or flight. The more adrenaline we have, the less oxytocin's produced. And we need that oxytocin because we need those contractions. So if we don't have that body in that rest and relax, then we start looking at, you know, Pitocin kind of going down that rabbit hole. So it's so interesting that so much of this is intertwined. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. And, um, you know, learning how to kind of find, well, learning how to, how should we say, kind of hack the nervous system and (laughs) develop tools to get us out of these dysregulated places that are totally normal to go to. The problem arises when we live there all the time. And, and also a problem arises when we aren't able to regulate that um, changing you know, states of the nervous system. So when we notice we're in that sympathetic fight or flight kind of place, do we have tools to help bring us back? Um, that's an ability to regulate. So sometimes I think people misunderstand this nervous system regulation as meaning we're supposed to always be like in the zone, in the sweet spot, alert and awake and calm all the time. That's not really the case. We're supposed to be able to travel in the nervous system and then get ourselves back. So, yes, but you're exactly right. You know, if we go into labor with that fight or flight massively on board, then things aren't necessarily going to soften with ease the way we might like them to, to allow the process to just kind of, to allow the body to do what we hope it knows how to do when it comes to birthing that baby. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to jump on what you were saying about the psoas and birthing the baby because there is a relationship between that. We'll take a super quick break and we'll be right back. Our family has grown. Welcome to the world, Hannah baby. Introducing a new collection, Hannah Soft, made with Tencel. It's so breathable with stretchy comfort for all of baby's first moments. And it's cool and gentle on their skin all year round. Entrusted Hannah quality for your most precious gift. Hannah soft, made to last. Shop now at hannahanderson.com. All right, we are back. So I know before we started to really, uh, before we started to record, we, you and I were talking a little bit about that. Let's dive into that. There's some other stuff I still want to talk about with the pelvis and pelvic floor. I love that. But as you were mentioning, yeah, we want the body soft and supple. So let's go into the psoas and birth and pelvis and fetal position and as I called it, the waterfall of the psoas. So there you go. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. I love the image of waterfall because you're right, you know suppleness is really the word that I like to use when we're describing just the myofascial system period at rest um, wants to be supple. It wants to be kind of lubricated, glidey, slidey, and supple. And what happens when there's chronic tension in a muscle or muscle group, um, things kind of get more dry and brittle and they lose suppleness and there's a lot of tension in the muscles. And sometimes people think, wow, it's just really strong because it's so tight. But that's not really the case. You know, tension in the muscle doesn't mean it's strong. It means it's dysfunctional in a tension kind of way. So it may, it doesn't contract well because it's already contracted. It doesn't yield to lengthening well. It's just stuck. It's just stuck there. So yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, and that's going to affect 
the baby coming down. And that's something that no one wants. No one wants those long, arduous births. Totally. And we want there to be some space for a baby to kind of get in optimal position for exit. And so when the, so as muscles are short, they can short, basically shorten the whole lumbar area because they'll just compress the whole space. And then, you know, a lot of people think about the psoas as like a, you called it the waterfall and the baby's kind of following the waterfall down. And I think of it a little bit like a runway, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like here, this way, (laughs) this is your pathway all the way down through the pelvis and and the baby's going to follow it literally out of the vaginal canal. So one thing I think people also maybe aren't aware of, and for years, I didn't think I got this either, is that the psoas, in my mind, I think of it like they cradles the uterus. And we know that if there's asymmetry in the psoas, it can change the positioning of the uterus. And then that baby may not be able to rotate itself or navigate corkscrew down. So I think the psoas just plays such a huge role. As we talked about, it has to do with our breathing, our diaphragm, our nervous system, and literally how the baby can navigate its way through. These are huge. These are huge things about that psoas. Yeah, definitely. And very often the psoas is asymmetrically tense and dysfunctional because we use our bodies in such an asymmetrical way. And that's normal. That's just life. But it's very common that one side is, you know, really quite jacked up and the other side just isn't as much, you know? So, I do. Yeah. I remember when I went to a chiropractor the day before I had my second and she had, she had me bring my arms overhead and what, the way my hands touch, she's like, Oh, you're right. So as is a little tighter. I'm like, it is, it really is. And she mm-hmm. did something. And I literally had my baby the next day and I, I did a lot of work that time to help baby alignment, but six minutes of pushing. And I think a lot of it has to do because she just aligned things. So when mm-hmm. things are aligned internally, the pelvis, the pelvic bones, the the soft tissue, it can really help with a functional birth. Yeah, totally. And it helps with just functional posture. I mean, that's a great thing to bring up because when we think about postural alignment, there are lots of notions about what you know proper posture is. Yeah. But when I think about aligning the body. I just think about stacking the bones Mm -hmm. and there are two cues I usually give for standing posture and they need to be unpacked a little bit, but they are back it up and stack it up. And so go into it. Talk about that. Yeah. So the back it up part is the pelvis is the center of mass in the body for all of us. And very commonly, especially in pregnancy, we'll let the pelvis drift forward, which is kind of like lean it forward in space so that our center of mass is now over our toes instead Mm -hmm. of over our ankles and our heel bones. And that right there, that little shift in space, because it feels easier because it doesn't require kind of the muscular stability to hold us up, that shift changes the pelvic position. It takes it posteriorly. It will automatically just tuck the tailbone under a little bit, send the femoral heads forward in their socket. So, you know, we're going to end up with some impingement in the hip over time, probably, you know, puts more stress on the patella and then also puts more stress on our plantar fascia and our toe bones, right, where they're not really that well designed for that kind of weight bearing. So it it impacts the whole geometry of the body just with that little shift. So we can change things a lot by just backing it up, back up the pelvis. You don't even have to think about tilting the pelvis this way or that, just back it up so that your weight is now over the heel bones. And now the pelvis automatically kind of comes closer to a neutral position. And 
in that neutral-ish position, we get more length for the pelvic floor muscles. So they now can maybe operate at a better length and not get all shortened up because that's going to cause us more trouble later. Mm-hmm. And then we have a chance to stack the rib cage over the pelvis. And that's something that um, we should talk about because a lot of people, when we think about psoas major, we're just focused in on the pelvis, the pelvis. But what the psoas does to the rib cage is really important for pregnancy, especially when we talk about prevention of diastasis recti. Oh, yes. Go there. I love Yeah. (laughs) You have all my suit words going on. Pelvic floor, (laughs) diastasis. You talked about shortened pelvic floor. We don't want that. Ooh, We don't. We do not want that. Ooh, we don't want that. We want supple, supple pelvic floor. I think of it like like a jellyfish. That's how I've been talking about it for years. It has the ability to dome and lengthen and dome and lengthen. And it should have, again, suppleness. Just like the whole body. I think we get too attached to like a hard body. We want a simple, juicy body. All right. So I digress. That's right. right. Well, I really think functional strength lies in suppleness. I mean, you can't have functional strength without suppleness. They're two sides of the same coin. Yes. Um, They go together. That's what every muscle dreams of being, is strong and supple. So, yes. All right. So So now talk about diastasis and the rib cage and the psoas. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the upper attachment of psoas major, remember, is at T12, the, the last thoracic vertebra. Well, the thing that also attaches to the lowest thoracic vertebra is the rib cage, the lowest ribs. So what happens when, if you think about the whole span of psoas major, you think about the upper reaches of it getting pulled on with tension. What happens to the rib cage is a rib thrust. So it basically pulls the whole rib cage forward into a sway back. And that's usually um, in my opinion, in my experience, what leads to the appearance of a sway back. It's this kind of upper lumbar, lower thoracic extension that, you know, one of the things contributing to that is the psoas tension. It just pulls on those low ribs, those low ribs from the back and pulls them forward. And so then you get this back bend at the upper lumbar. Then when we see that, everyone's like, whoa, that pelvis is so anterior. But actually, the pelvis may not be overly anteriorly tilted. What's happening is the rib cage has now been displaced from stacking over the pelvis. And then what that means is now our diaphragm is kind of pointing forward Mm -hmm. rather than stacking over the pelvis uh, and making contact you know, less and less contact, of course, in pregnancy because there's a person in between, but um, it wants to be able to make contact with the pelvic floor so they can function as a team. Respiratory diaphragm, pelvic diaphragm, they're a team. Right. So we kind of get this unstacking thing happening in the upper reaches of psoas major. Now, when the ribs flare forward, that also puts a lateral pull on the midline fascia, and that's where we get into diastasis recti risk. And then I'm just I'm just formulating and kind of visualizing this. So if we have now the rib cage kind of thrust forward and then when we're inhaling, is there more intra-abdominal pressure pushing outward and that can weaken the linea alba? Is that part mm-hmm. of it? Okay. Totally. Because now the pressure is going forward. So instead of down. Know, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm instead, this. instead of in a 360 degree, actually, you know, we want to be able to spread pressure throughout the trunk, mm-hmm. uh, the whole trunk to really participate in that pressure management. And 
when we don't have adequate suppleness in the whole trunk, whether it's in the waist or the tissues of the upper low back and the lower ribs and the back, because they've been compressed for so long by our tight psoas pulling the ribs forward, they can't expand. They can't share in the work of pressure management. Then we'll get problems wherever the system is weakest. It's just pushing so we'll, forward. Yeah, I get that. it's just pushing forward. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I love this. All right, so we've talked that we know there's problems with the psoas, but for the, a lot of people, we are now understanding how it is structurally. Let's, because I'm very focused on re, on resolution, let's talk about some ways to release the psoas for a pregnant person. Because I think some people think, oh, I'm just going to stretch it. Because it's not all about stretch. I think more of a release because we want it to be, again, juicy and supple. That right? That's right. Okay. That's right. And this is one of those counterintuitive things that, you know, you could try stretching your psoas for years and years and it just like won't budge, you know, it just doesn't, it doesn't want to be stretched. Um, very often it doesn't want to be stretched. I mean, if yours responds well to a stretch, that's great. But a lot of times it can't stand being pulled on. It just wants you to kind of leave it alone in a way. It wants you to get into a better position so that it has help. So the real message here is how can we give this thing some support? Because it has been pulling the weight of a whole team of muscles that should have been there to support it. And for whatever reason, whether it's, you know, sustained habits and postures and deconditioning and weakness and all these different inhibition of some of the team of muscles, we're relying overly um, on the psoas major to do a lot of work and it's exhausted so really, you know, my approach to dealing with a dysfunctional psoas is to kind of like back off of it and look at the bigger picture. And so a few things. One is um, practice dropping into this backing it up, stacking it up posture. Get your weight over your heels. Work on dropping those front ribs down over the pelvis and just kind of settling into that stacked posture for a few minutes each day. And then when that happens, often we'll reveal some upper back kyphosis that's been hiding in this whole kind of situation that then we have to work on dealing with. But that's kind of a different story. Um, so, but when we stack the ribs over the pelvis, then we have to grow the crown of the head long without taking our ribs with us. Mm -hmm. So that's really good practice because when we drop into that posture, we are asking the psoas to adapt to um, have more length. I mean, it doesn't feel like a stretch per se, but we are asking it to accommodate a different position. And it has to adapt over time to that by gaining some length, especially in those upper reaches, so that the rib cage even has the possibility of sinking back and stacking over the pelvis. So the postural work is really important and learning to drop those front ribs is super critical for prevention of that diastasis recti. And that's kind of the first place I work on when I'm treating it is if someone's a rib thruster, we've got to get that under control. Otherwise, there's just a constant force pulling on the midline. Mm -hmm. And then you mentioned releasing of the psoas. That's, that's the key. And that is usually um, done with this position called constructive rest, which has someone you know on her back with legs either on a couch or in a chair or even just feet on the ground with knees bent yeah. and knees resting in on each other. Yeah, that's how I and learned it And the problem in with that is, 
Yeah. And of course, the problem with that is that, you know, a lot of pregnant women aren't comfortable being on their back for any period of time, especially later in pregnancy. So that becomes problematic. But so some people can modify that by placing a bolster, you know, propping it up on some blocks so that there's an incline. And if pregnant mama is comfortable reclining on that incline, and then she can kind of take that constructive rest position with that support. Um, what yeah, about, ahead. I was just going to uh, mention also, I remember studying this a little bit and again, please correct me if I'm wrong, just like a gentle child's pose, like a wide knee child's pose. Cause then we're folding in. And then I also was, I also learned like a gentle standing cat cow. So your knees are bent, your hands are in your thighs, and you're just getting really mindful tailbone up and down. What mm-hmm. are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I think that sounds nice. I think the as far as a release goes, the the wide need child's pose, if people can really relax into that, that's going to have the psoas in a better position for release so that when we think about release, we want to think about position of the psoas. So we put it in a short position, but it's totally passive. Right. It's not trying to hold everything up. Right. It's not contracting to be there and it's not getting any tensile force across. It's not being stretched at all. It's just, I I say it's like it's at the spa. It's just hanging out. No one's bothering it. And it just gets to like take a deep breath. And the other piece I would say is in pregnancy to get actual support um, may have influence on the mechanisms that are driving a lot of tension in the psoas beyond just the structural reality of a changing body and all this physical stress, but the stress of being pregnant in a society that doesn't take care of its pregnant and new moms kind of at all, then the idea of actually giving this new mom and this new family really big time support, I think is critical. Let's jump into postpartum. So I was actually surprised until I had my kids I knew the psoas, you know, was trying to overhaul and help because the back muscles tend to atrophy, but I was surprised at how much sitting there was until I was actually there. I'm like, oh my God, I'm constantly mm-hmm. sitting and that's going to shorten the, the psoas. So mm-hmm. what's a great path back postpartum to, in respect to the psoas and structure? Because we still have, we still have relaxin in the body for mm-hmm. up to a year. So those ligaments are still soft. And then we also have this huge shift of of the babies out now the spine and pelvis is trying to find its place and then the psoas is like here i come come to save the day and yeah. it's tightened up so what's a great path of recovery thinking about the psoas yeah so that's those are great questions um so i think for the most part early on postpartum whenever mama feels like getting back into some gentle movement gentle yoga the focus should be on the back body and about strengthening the back of the body. And very often there's, you know, lots of muscle spasms all the way up and down the spine because we're bent over and taking care of baby and feeding baby and all this position of strain where the muscles of the back just get crazy tight because they're trying to hold us up. They need help. So back strengthening the whole back of the, of the spine and definitely the glutes and the hip muscles we want to build up support there so that the whole lumbosacral area has that support and the psoas isn't having to pick up the slack anymore. And then, you know, continuing that release process. So 
if I had to write a formula about how to take care of the psoas major, it would be step one, passive release. That's just relaxation in some of those positions we talked about, whether it's constructive rest or that child's pose that feels restful. That's step one, because that primes the pump for psoas to be yielding and to be supple. It supples it up. And then step two is going to be, let's just continue to send psoas major some messages about chilling out. Let's send it some inhibition. So that is, I call that active release, which really means let's fire up our gluteus maximus and our low back muscles. So they not only get stronger, but our recruitment of those are more kind of automatic recruitment of those when they're called on helps to inhibit the psoas major so that it can stay relaxed more. And then, you know, that's pretty much, those are the two most important pieces of my personal formula, I guess. But if we were going to present any stretching, I would only do it at that point. And the strengthening of psoas major, I don't even usually give much of a thought. Not that it's a bad thing to do at all, but here's the thing. When there's a cranky psoas or one that's exhausted, if you go to try to do like some leg lifts or leg raises, you know, or strengthening of the psoas, it's probably not going to go well. It's just going to kind of get it all jacked up even more. So I usually try to just kind of leave that alone and let things fall into place more as a, as a regional team. And here's the thing too about postpartum and restoring kind of the core strengthening stuff is if our abdominal muscles are not integrated enough postpartum to be able to produce force and do the stabilization stuff that we ask for of them in our kind of abdominal strengthening work, then the thing that's going to pick up that slack is psoas major again. So we're you know, just so exhausting of, it more. Yeah, yeah. So when people get back to that belly strengthening, we have to start super gentle. And where we start is with breath work, is pranayama, because the foundation of core stability is the breath, is this responsiveness to the breath. So that's where I would start, which is kind of following the exhale, in, you know, with the belly drawing inward, that abdominal Yeah, that's how we start our postnatal is first we just find those TA muscles. And I think sometimes people are expecting when I say, okay, now we're going to start to just work on our core. They're expecting like crunches and it, it has mm-hmm. a very different quality of, of like, it's not a, a quote unquote burn. Like you're not going to feel I'm working my abs. It's a, it's subtle. It's, I think it's strong, but it's subtle at the same time. Like, yes. cause it's a different, it's different feedback. If that's the best yes, way to describe it. it. Is, it's exactly right. It's very subtle, but that's where it has to start. That's the foundation. So that when you get to some more challenging loads on the core of the body, those muscles are at the ready and they're on board. You, your body knows how to recruit them. So they're there. Because again, if they're not there, we're going to get trouble. We're going to recruit our more superficial abdominal muscles, which um, isn't a bad thing, but it's not really the foundation of our deep core stability. And then of course, so I was going to jump in and say, oh, I'll do it. I'll do everything. <laughs> I feel like that's my life right now. I'll do it. I'll I know. <laughs> it's like, 
Every every mom basically is a sewing okay, major. So we are stabilizing. <laughs> we are holding it together. <laughs> yeah, and we just need help. I mean, we just need support. You know, really. Maybe that's why so I like that, it so much. That, that metaphor, I think, is just really is quite powerful. It really relates to what the body's experiencing. Too. I think all parents out, all mothers out there, have been like, that is why we all like the psoas so much, is because we relate <laughs> to the overburdening of that poor muscle to hold it all together. Yep. Well, you have brought me so much amazing information. Thank you. Is there anything else you want to add about the psoas before we take one more quick break? Mm. Uh, I don't think so at the moment. Maybe after the break, I'll think of something. (laughs) We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I would love if you can offer one tip or piece of advice you would like to offer new or expectant parents. We'll be right back. Hey, we're back. So you can offer this as a mother. You have two kids. Um, you work with the perinatal population. So really from anything that you feel, uh, authentic with. Yeah. So the biggest piece of advice I would give to expecting a new moms is to take your time after that baby comes out. There is such a big, weird message out there that says you're supposed to be like a rubber band and you just bounce back. And um, that is supported by so many problematic elements of our culture, um, namely that nobody gets any support postpartum and you get one doctor visit at six weeks and then you're supposed to go live your life. And the process of reintegration postpartum is long and it's not to be rushed. And so just be another voice that says, take your time. This body is not a rubber band, you know, honor it, build the foundation back. It just made a human from scratch. It's amazing. You know, so we have to take care of that. And then the other piece I would say is this is the time to just blow it out on getting support, like get the extra credit card or whatever it is that gives you the ability to get the support you need to get through those first um, months or that first year of being a new mom. Yeah, it is such a huge transition. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate the work you do. Where can people find your work? Yeah, so I've got a website that's just my name, LibbyHinesley.com. And then I have a project that I'm about to launch called Anatomy Bites. And actually, for your listeners, if anyone's interested, you can go to AnatomyBites.com slash SOAS. And there's a free download that's my tips on dealing with SOAS major. And while it's not specific for pregnancy... Um, hopefully it'll be a useful document for some of your listeners. And then when you go to Anatomy Bites, you can plug in your email and you'll be the first to know when we launch this project. And the project is for yoga instructors. It's a monthly membership anatomy training. So I'll be delivering kind of monthly bite-size anatomy content that's really relevant for teaching yoga and offering some monthly support and community. And I'm really excited about it. It's something I've wanted to do for a long time. So those are some ways to find me. That sounds amazing. And I feel like so many yoga teachers really can appreciate that. And the more teachers I speak with, anatomy is an area that many people are fascinated by and also scared by. So I love that you're giving it in little bite-sized pieces. It sounds wonderful. Yeah. I mean, the point is to not be overwhelmed by it because I was there too as a new yoga teacher. I was totally overwhelmed by it and it's scary and it's intimidating. But even if your style isn't to talk a lot about anatomy, that background knowledge can be so um, confidence building and enriching to your teaching. 
Oh, this sounds wonderful. Thank you so much for giving me some time. I really appreciate it. I know I kind of jumped at you. I'm like, when can I talk to you? I love everything you have to say. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun to talk to you. Oh, you're welcome. Right. Be well. This has been an episode of Yoga Birth Babies, produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Thanks for listening.